This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rashes, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice with over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC that's p-e-d-s-d-o-c I want to help clarify, but a lot of parents mistakenly think that baby led weaning just means skipping or avoiding purees. And that's certainly not the case. Purees are a very important texture for babies to master. It's just not the only texture that your baby can eat. And so we can honor the self-feeding principles of baby led weaning and still have baby learn how to eat naturally pureed foods like full fat whole milk yogurt and unsweetened applesauce and oatmeal. But we do that using what's called the pre-loaded spoon technique. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I get so excited to talk to the most amazing guests on this podcast to have conversations about parenthood, child health, development, feeding, and so much more. Thank you so much for tuning in, for all of your reviews, and for all of the love you show this podcast. This is how it continues to grow, and I'm just so excited to welcome our next guest, which is Katie Ferraro, who is a registered dietitian specializing in one of my favorite things, baby-led weaning mom of seven and founder of Baby Led Wean Team and podcast host, by the way. And she's joining me today to talk about trickier textures, pushing your baby's palate past purees. That's a tongue twister. Thank you so much for joining me today, Katie. Hi, Mona. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm so excited to have you on my podcast. I have been on yours and I love the information you're putting out there, not only on your podcast, but also on your social media and your courses. So I know you and I'm pretty sure a lot of my followers know who you are too. But if they don't, tell us more about yourself and why you do what you do in baby led weaning. Well, first off, I want to say thank you as a pediatrician for being an advocate for baby led weaning. You were actually yes. on my podcast, Baby Led Weaning Made Easy, a long time ago talking about how to talk to your doctor about baby led weaning. And mm -hmm. I know that's such a sticky point for parents. For me, I struggled a lot with spoon feeding with my oldest, like a lot of parents do. And the height of my feeding frustration. Like my daughter hated food. I thought she hated me. Like mealtimes were a downright battleground. My husband and I then found out we were pregnant with quadruplets. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking like, how am I going to feed four babies at one time when I can't even feed the one baby that I have at home? So fast forward, I actually ended up giving birth to four healthy little babies at 34 wow, weeks, yeah. three boys and a girl. And when it came time for them to start solid foods, I was like, we are not recreating this hellacious experience of force feeding by spoon that I had had with my older daughter. And a colleague told me about baby led weaning. And I was like, baby linguini, like, what are you talking about? I've never heard of it. And I was, I'm a college nutrition professor. And at the time, because of my other feeding professor colleagues were like, no, you really need to look into this. There's a real incredible body of research that supports this notion that a baby can learn to feed themselves the safe, wholesome foods that their parents or caregivers provide starting at six months of age. There's no force feeding. There's no picky eating. There's no short order cooking. And I was like, 
oh my gosh, this sounds like the answer to my prayer. So we, we went all in on baby led weaning. It was not easy at first. Cause at that time there were really like no resources on how to do it. Like lots of stuff about what baby led weaning is as an alternative to traditional spoon feeding, but nothing about how to do it. So we kind of like eked it out. I put my dietitian training to work, lots of trial and error, lots of tears, but I realized that by the time the quads turned one, they had tried 100 different foods. And so this whole idea of my 100 first foods program was born, this notion that babies can safely learn to eat 100 foods prior to turning one. And if you look at traditional spoon feeding, those babies have had maybe 10 or 12 foods before they turn one. Mm -hmm. And as we know, most children will experience some degree of picky eating starting in the second year of life. So if your child only has 10 or 12 foods under their belt, and then you lose those to picky eating, that becomes a very challenging child to feed. But if your baby's eaten hundred different foods and you lose 10 or 12 of those to picky eating, then you still have like 85 or 90 foods that the baby can eat. Yeah. Right. So kind of the underpinning this whole hundred first foods approach, it's really taken off as a global phenomenon in the last five years. And it's been so fun just seeing families all around the world really push their baby's palates beyond purees, which I know is what we're going to talk about today. Yes. And so important. And we'll talk about the fear parents have about advancing them past purees because there is a fear of choking and gag reflex, all of that. Um, and also not knowing how to do it. There's just so much information out there. And I agree with you. You know, I left residency in, well, I have to remember 2015. So it's been like seven, eight years. And in residency, we didn't learn about baby lead weaning. It was still relatively kind of new, but it was when I started my first job as a pediatrician, I was working in Tribeca, Manhattan, which was the intersection of a lot of different cultural families, people from Europe, people from America, a lot of international people were my patients. And a lot of my European patients, like from England, would be like, hey, what about baby led weaning? And I'm like, exactly what you said. I'm like, what? And I looked into it and I was like, this seems okay. But because I was trained with you go to purees and then you advance to stage two and stage three, I was like, I'm not sure. And as I learned from them, you know, I learned a lot from my patients and their parents about baby led weaning. I was like, this seems okay as long as it's safe. And then obviously, when I became a parent, resources like you, all these resources about baby led weaning were so helpful. And I always kind of think about it, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, like I'm pretty sure back in like the caveman era, they didn't have a blender to blend up food. So they had to breastfeed their babies and then they had to give them food that they were eating. So it's possible, right? Like they had to kind of give what they were eating. And that's kind of what we're doing and that we're giving the baby what we're eating. Yeah, we just call it something different now. Yes, my mom's exactly. it's funny because my mom's a dietitian and I'm the oldest of six. And she's like, I think it's insane that you have an entire movement around baby led weaning when it's like exactly what most parents end up doing with their second babies. Anyway, you just yes. call it something different. And you bring up a couple interesting points. First of all, as a pediatrician and a physician in the United States, more than 90% of physicians in this country have never had a dedicated nutrition class. Mm -hmm. And so parents will go to their pediatrician and ask questions about nutrition. And while pediatricians are certainly well-versed in many areas, a lot of times they're not necessarily up to speed on the most recent evidence-based practices regarding infant feeding. And I routinely have questions from parents who say things like, oh, well, my pediatrician said, don't offer the baby egg white until age one. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like that's more than 20 year old data at this point. Yeah. And I know there's a lot to keep up on, but I do think it's so important that we are getting our food and feeding information from credentialed experts. And I love that so many more pediatricians are really looking into baby led weaning. And you mentioned the UK. So Jill Rapley is the founder of the baby led weaning movement. She's the pioneer of baby led weaning, the original author of the first baby led weaning book. And that book in its first edition was only published in 2008. So it's about 15 years old at this point. 
It's been mm-hmm. republished. And now there's tons of research that support this, again, as a real and credible alternative to traditional spoon feeding. So it's safe. It's evidence-based. It helps our babies meet their needs. It's such a wonderful experience for families to be able to feed their babies modified versions of the same foods the rest of the family eats, which, as you mentioned, is exactly probably what Cave Mama did back in the day before there was like an entire aisle of baby food pouches at the store with processed applesauce in them that were literally made and packaged before your baby was even born. Like this whole notion of commercial baby food, it's really only been since the earlier part of the 20th century where that's even been an option. For millennia and generations prior to that, babies ate modified versions of the same foods the rest of their family eats. We're just kind of codifying it now and really looking at the research behind it with baby led weaning. I love this. And, you know, my personal story is I have a three-year-old now, but we started with purees with allergenic food exposure. And then we switched to baby led weaning once he was sitting more, you know, independently grabbing for the foods and kind of what you said at six and a half months, he did not want a spoon in his mouth. So it was actually him showing me also that, Hey, I actually am not a puree fed kind of baby. I want to do this on my own. And it was a bridge of, you know, moving towards past those puree textures, getting more of that textured foods, which we'll talk about. And so for some parents listening, they may say, well, my baby at six and a half months is showing signs of readiness, but is just staring at the food, not really interested, just looking at me like, what are you trying to do? But it's for some kids, it could be that they're showing you, like you said, your daughter was not a puree fed type of kid. But I do believe knowing that some babies may be more hesitant to it. It's still possible if they're showing signs of readiness, I know this wasn't planned, but tell our listeners again, the signs of readiness for baby led weaning. Like what are some things that we're looking out for from a developmental milestone perspective? Well, we talk about readiness to eat, not necessarily readiness to feed because with baby led weaning, the baby is going to be the one who's driving the entire eating experience. And you mentioned purees. We're here today to talk about textures. And I want to help clarify, a lot of parents mistakenly think that baby led weaning just means skipping or avoiding Mm -hmm. purees. And that's certainly not the case. Purees are a very important texture for babies to master. It's just not the only texture that your baby can eat. And so we can honor the self-feeding principles of baby led weaning and still have baby learn how to eat naturally pureed foods like full fat whole milk yogurt and unsweetened Mm -hmm. applesauce and oatmeal. But we do that using what's called the pre-loaded spoon technique. So this is a technique and a term coined by Dawn Winkleman. She's a speech language pathologist and baby led weaning expert. She's the product designer for the company Easy Peasy that makes Mm -hmm. the silicone suction mats and bowls. And so the preloaded spoon technique is where you put the food on the spoon, put the spoon in the baby's hand. And at the very beginning, you gently have to guide the baby's hand to the mouth. Usually put your hand under their hand just so that they can get the notion of where it's going. We're not forcing them. They'll actually take a little taste. Sometimes they'll eat the wrong end of the spoon. Sometimes they'll put their hand in the puree and sometimes they'll do absolutely nothing. And so when we talk about being ready to eat, we have to acknowledge that this is a continuum, this whole weaning process, right? We start at six months of age where most or all of baby's nutrition is coming from infant milk. That's breast milk or formula. And we're progressing towards a goal at 12 months of age where we want most of baby's nutrition to be coming from food. As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs 
Studies and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Are you looking for something different to entertain your kids? Check out a new podcast for children. Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, is a weekly show full of time travel puzzles, hidden equations, history, and lots of laughs. Math is geared towards kids six and up, but can be enjoyed by the entire family. I love how the episodes are under 20 minutes, which was perfect for our drive to school. And my four-year-old really loved the episode, The Pirate Queen. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time-traveling adventures. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras' ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and so much more. New episodes drop every Thursday, and I love how engaging, funny, and educational the episodes are. Your kids won't even realize they're learning about math and problem solving. My son even said he wanted to finish the episode on our drive home from school. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. So between six and 12 months of age, weaning is you'll gradually or your baby will gradually be eating more of their nutrition from food and less from milk, but it doesn't happen overnight. And I think that's the biggest place where parents get stuck is that in the first few days and weeks of baby led weaning, they don't see much actual food being eaten or as my dietitian friends get concerned, they're not getting enough calories or they're not getting enough iron, or I feel like I need to finish them off with the pouch so they quote unquote get enough. But we need to remember that in the earliest stages of baby led weaning, when your baby is six months of age or six months adjusted age and sitting up on their own and starting to show interest in food, that the majority of their nutrition is still coming from infant milk. And so Mm -hmm. we need to stop being concerned about how much the baby is eating and rather back off and give the baby a lot of time and space and grace to learn how to eat and how to start using food to start supplying more of their nutrition needs. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a gradual progression. It can take some babies up to eight weeks before it really clicks for them and they're actually picking the food up and bringing it to their mouth. And to be honest, I see that most parents give up before that part because they don't understand, gosh, this takes a long time. I see babies on social media, that baby's seven months of age, and they're eating all this food and compare and despair. And so I encourage you not to compare your baby to anyone else's baby. Practice makes progress at six to seven months of age. If you can do one to two times a day with solid food, great. Mm -hmm. Eight to nine months of age, we love to see you bump it up to two to three times. And then by 10 months of age, we like to see babies eating around three times a day. If that reflects how the family eats with their family meals, and we're moving to that goal of hopefully by 12 months of age, we're getting your baby off that bottle. If you want to continue breastfeeding, great, do so. But we want most of baby's nutrition coming from food. But you got like a six-month practice period is how I like yeah. to describe it. I, I kind of describe it as like the preseason. My husband hates when I do sports analogies, but I'm like, <laughs> you know the preseason? Like, let's say you have season tickets. Like, they make you buy the preseason tickets. And that's where it's like kind of ugly and the team's warming up and like you got to yeah, watch yeah. stuff you don't really like. And you're like, this doesn't really look like like 
insert name of sport. Like this doesn't really look like eating in the first few weeks, but your baby is learning so many important skills. They're having so many sensory experiences that will all kind of click usually around the eight month mark. But again, Mm -hmm. that doesn't happen Mm -hmm. overnight. We've got to be practicing. So don't give up if you're feeling frustrated is my encouragement to parents. Oh, I love this. I love this encouragement already. This is so important because yeah, especially with anything with parenting, that patience and that persistence is so important and kind of checking in on, you know, do you have the resources? Like if you're unsure of how to do what we're talking about, getting the resources you need, whether it's watching social media videos, getting courses like the baby led wing team has all of this is so important to get, you know, to help your family and help your child figure out how to eat these textured foods. And I love that you already talked about some misconceptions. One, I love the one about obviously that you can still eat purees and baby led weaning, which is obviously, I think one of the biggest misconceptions. You also talk about, you know, some of the misconception that they should be eating so much right away, which I really appreciate because like you said, yes, it's predominantly breast milk or formula or both. And then food is something that's important to be introduced, but right away, they're not going to be downing like four slices of pizza. That's okay. What other misconceptions do parents have about more textured foods? You know, maybe they've been told by grandma, puree, puree, puree. Um, But what about any misconceptions you've heard around textured foods? Well, I think the elephant in the baby led weaning space is the fear of choking. So Mm -hmm. all parents, no matter what approach to starting solid foods you take, have apprehensions and concerns about their baby choking, right? Your baby has only had thick liquids in their mouth for six solid months, right? Breast milk or formula. And now Mm -hmm. you're expecting me to offer avocado and sweet potato and strips of soft shreddable meat. Like, isn't my baby going to be choking? Like, I'm so scared of this. And I want to remind parents that choking is a very rare, but real risk. Always recommend that parents take a refresher infant CPR course prior to starting solid foods. I know you all took CPR before your baby was born, but that was like six months ago. I don't know about you, but I can't remember what I had for breakfast today, let alone like the particulars (laughs) of a CPR course I took six months ago. So knowing what to do in the event of choking is important, but also educating yourself about reducing choking risk. And this is where I really like to lean into the research. And we have research that shows us that baby Babies who start solid foods with a baby-led approach are at no higher risk of choking than are babies who start with traditional spoon feeding, Mm -hmm. provided that the parents are educated about reducing choking risk. So I encourage parents to educate themselves about how to prepare the food safely and proper high chair seating. And then also knowing CPR in the rare event if your baby does have a choking incident. But when we talk about texture, sometimes parents are, I'm just so scared, Katie, to move past purees. I'm so scared about the gagging. I'm so scared they're going to choke. And I would remind parents of another body of research that's showing us that the babies who have had the least experience with finger foods are actually at elevated risk for choking. Mm -hmm. And so while yes, it's okay to incorporate purees, and I recommend doing so with the preloaded spoon approach, I teach a purees for a few days approach. It's kind of a bridge for our very, very anxious parents who really making that transition from liquid diet to solid diet. They're like, I need that puree bridge. We do it for two, sometimes three days. And then we move right onto soft, solid strips of food. And knowing that that finger food practice is developmentally appropriate at that age, and it's going to, with practice, actually reduce your baby's risk of choking, plus allow your baby to eat such a wider variety of nutrients to get all those allergenic foods on in, and then to have experience with trickier textures beyond purees. And that's completely appropriate to do beginning at six months of age or six months adjusted age if your baby was born prematurely. 
Oh, really great advice because there is a lot of fear around that gag reflex and that choking. And so in terms of, you also mentioned educating yourself on proper sitting in the high chair, how to prepare the food. One thing I know you also agree with is also, I know you have done this on your social media, which is so helpful, is educating yourself on the difference between what a gag looks like and what choking looks like. You know, I know you've done those warning videos like, hey, this is going to be a video of a child gagging or choking. But I think that really helps. And that can be really hard for a parent sometimes to look at those things and not your baby, but obviously videos on people's social media accounts or YouTube. But it really is important to understand that difference between what a gag looks like and what choking looks like. Because with gagging, you want to give a little bit of patience to let that child work it out, obviously be monitoring them. Choking, you got to intervene. But sometimes I see parents and I, my in-laws are notorious for this. And my parents <laughs> is that my son will, when he was an infant, especially learning how to handle these textures, he would start gagging. And, you know, I know what a gag looks like, but all of a sudden somehow they see it and they come swooping in and they're startling him or they try to pat him on the back. And I'm like, let's all be calm. And yep. it's such a scary experience for the kid too, right? They're like, why are all my caregivers like standing up and looking terrified when I'm just working this out? So really, you don't want to scare your child when they're gagging because that can actually, I know this is hard 100%. to hear, but it can, it can yes. lead it to can choking. It can turn a harmless gag into yeah. a harmful choke. And so really you make an yeah. excellent point that knowing the difference between gagging and choking is one of the most important tenets of baby led weaning. And I'll summarize mm -hmm. it real quickly. Yeah, gagging it. is a good thing. With Gagging, your baby is going to be coughing. They're going to be mm -hmm. sputtering. They're going to be turning red or pink, but they're making noise, right? And gagging is a natural and necessary part of learning how to eat. And the making noise part is important because it means that air yeah. is passing through. So your baby who is six months of age and able to sit on their own, who is seated properly in a high chair with their feet resting flat on a solid foot plate, being offered soft, solid strips of food about the size of your adult pinky finger, you put all those things together. When that baby gags on food, that's them learning how to eat. They're going to move that food a little bit forward a little bit rounded the side, the more practice they have, the frequency and the intensity of the gagging goes down. Now, the other side of the spectrum is choking, completely different from gagging. With choking, your baby is absolutely silent. There might be very, mm. very silent noises or you see them struggling, but you're not going to hear very much and they turn blue or they turn purple. I'm not a pediatrician, but I do remember being in the NICU and the doctors would tell you blue is bad. Okay. If your baby turns blue, that's bad. No noise, no air is passing through. If your baby is choking on food, you do need to intervene and you do need to administer CPR and you do need to do those back blows. But with choking, we do not intervene. And you mentioned like using that, like I call it my fake baby voice, like you're okay, baby. You're just gagging on food. You got this. You can work it through talking to your child in a peaceful, calm voice, but not touching them. If you touch them, if you mm -hmm. lunge at them, if I were to lunge at you when you were going through an experience that was really challenging and you had something food in your mouth, you're trying to figure out what to do with. If I lunge at you and startle you and you lean back and you suck in air, what happens? You could cause that potentially harmless gag to turn into a harmful choke. So we advise parents, I always say, sit on your hands, and yeah. talk to your baby. Yeah, I'm not an animal person, but my friend Dawn always said, she's like, Katie, you don't like animals, but like the best language to use when you're scared about your baby gagging is like, remember when you're pushing your baby around the stroller in the neighborhood, right? And the neighbor's dog would come up and like inside I would be freaking out, but you'd be like, it's okay, baby. It's just a dog. The dog's not going <laughs> to hurt you. You got this. It's okay, baby. This is just a gag. You got this. You can work it out. And I do think, and this is why we spend so much time working on our gagging videos on YouTube and TikTok mm -hmm. and Instagram is to show parents what it looks like when a baby gags on food, recovers on their own, and goes right back to eating. The parent 
does not need to be involved, right? We have our jobs in feeding. Ellen Satter's division of responsibility in feeding. You got a job, mom. You are in charge of what the baby eats and where they eat and when they eat. But that baby ultimately decides how much or even whether they eat. And so I like to tell parents, leave it on the table. That's not your job. Once you've done your job of what and when and where the baby's eating, you got to let the baby do all the how much or even whether they're eating. And we don't intervene at that part. And so sometimes parents, it feels like mm-hmm. this like, pressure is lifted off their shoulders. Like, oh my gosh, once I put the food out there, you have to sit there and observe your baby, right? Because if a baby's going to choke on food, you're not going to hear it. Sometimes yes. your parents are like, cool, yes. it's meal time. I'm just going to get my phone out. I'm going to scroll. Yeah, and yeah. like, if anything goes bad, I'll hear it. No, oh, you're yeah. not. You're not mm-hmm. going to hear a choke. So we stay there and we're always directly observing the baby, but observe them, gag on their food. Sometimes it's a little painful for you to watch. It's mm-hmm. painful for them to experience. Not painful. It's uncomfortable. But the more practice they have, the less frequent and the less intense those gags are. And you will get so much more confident in your baby's ability to get over their gags. But sometimes watching those videos really, really helps because you're like, oh, that's what it looks like. That's what it sounds like. And look at that baby. They gagged and they went right back to eating on their own and they're fine. And guess what? I didn't have to do anything because that's not my job. I don't need to intervene during a gag. Oh, and speaking of like just personal experience, my husband is an ER doctor and he could not handle the gag in his own son because he was so afraid of the choking. So for meals, like inconvenient, but I actually had to be around for a lot of the meals because he would just get so scared and not want to do the more trickier textures because he was so scared of the choking. And, you know, I know there's a lot of grandparents probably involved or nannies kind of understanding and educate those people too, right? Not just you, but if you're interested, anyone who's going to be feeding that baby, um, into what we're what we're talking about. It's really important that they're aware and know what to do. Like you said, everything that you just mentioned is important for all caregivers. And I appreciate that. So you mentioned something about puree bridging. Um, how else, or maybe even diving into that a little bit, how can we encourage those trickier textures? So using the example of maybe a family who is puree feeding a child and wants to start doing more of that trickier textures that, you know, even whether it's self-feeding or whatnot, um, how can we encourage that in a child who may be more hesitant? Well, I love that you're mentioning grandparents. I love like in your Instagram <laughs> stories, I always see your in-laws there. And also that your husband's an ER doctor and still scared of this. Like if you actually look at the data on pediatric admission for non-fatal choking incidents, it's so crazy that all the foods that are high-risk foods are like foods we don't serve for baby led weaning, like yes. raw apples, right? Like no hard, crunchy, raw or crispy foods for babies. So we always keep the foods nice and soft. So we like to say that it has to pass the squish test, where if you squeeze the piece of food between your forefinger and your thumb, there should be a little bit of give there. So let's say you're cooking carrots, okay? You can cut them into strips about the size of your adult pinky finger. When they're cooked, if you bend them in half and they snap, that's not done enough. You mm-hmm. need to cook them a little bit more so they would pass that squish test. So the texture there, you do have a little bit of education as the parent to do that yourself, but babies can start to handle that at six months of age. And so I think for parents, we do in the first three days of baby led weaning, I'll usually start with avocado, banana, and sweet potato. Those are the easiest, most yep. simple starter foods. So I have a, my hundred first foods list, but we have over the course of the years started with all hundred foods on the list in the first week, just to prove to parents that there's no right or wrong foods to start with. Same thing with the allergenic foods. Yes, peanut and egg and milk are the three most common pediatric food allergies, but I've done shrimp as the first allergenic food for shellfish or tree nut. So I just want parents to know that there's no right or wrong foods to start with. 
And we do introduce one new food per day. So I have a five-step feeding framework where we do a new fruit on Monday, a new vegetable on Tuesday, a new starchy food on Wednesday, a new protein food on Thursday, and a new allergenic food on Friday, starting in week one of baby led weaning. And so what that helps parents do is to set up, okay, these are the five new foods we're going to choose this week. And you do not need to wait three to five days between foods. A lot of pediatricians fortunately perpetuate that myth. There's absolutely no research to support this idea of waiting three to five days between foods. The reason why that gets recommended is parents will say, oh, well, I need to observe for an allergic reaction. If your baby is going to have an allergic reaction to food, it will occur within minutes and up to no more than two hours following ingestion. It's not like you offer your baby a strawberry and three days later, the diaper's weird and you're like, oh my God, they're allergic to strawberries. Like that's not how allergic reactions work, the vast majority of them. So we need to encourage parents to be offering foods more frequently. Got all this great emerging data showing us that diet diversity, the greater the number of foods and flavors and tastes and textures that babies see early and often during the flavor window, which is that short period of time, anyone who's had children knows it closes pretty quickly, but that's when your baby will like and accept a wide variety of those foods and flavors and tastes and textures. Take advantage of that from week one, five new foods a week. In those foods, the first three days, I'll do a thin puree of the food. So let's say avocado, nice ripe avocado, thin puree with breast milk or formula, offer that off of a preloaded spoon. I'll do that for five minutes. Then I'll bring a chunkier puree, which is just the smashed avocado. Same thing off of a preloaded spoon. By that point, they're usually going to reach for it with their hands if they're babies that like to touch food. And then I do that for five minutes. And then for the last 10 minutes of the meal, I offer soft, solid strips of avocado. And a lot of times this is more for the parents and the caregivers than it is for the baby. Because mm-hmm. the baby proved to you with a thin yeah. puree that they can handle something besides breast milk or formula. And then with the chunkier puree, they picked up and they might put it on their mouth. They might move it around, spit it out, drop it on the floor. And then the soft, solid strips, many times they'll pick that food up and they'll start to figure out what to do with it. They might smash it in their ear or their hair, but that's just day one right? You've got a hundred days essentially to practice this, to help your baby get proficient. Because some babies aren't going to touch the food at all, but you come right back on day two with banana, same thing, thin puree, chunkier puree, some soft, solid strips of banana. And then you can bring back some of the avocado from the previous day. Mm-hmm. And then on day three, we'll, we'll do the same thing. First 10 minutes of the meal, we'll explore with sweet potato. And then the second 10 minutes, I bring in a plate with that new food of the day, sweet potato, and then the familiar foods from the previous days, avocado and banana. So in that way, your baby is moving forward by trying one new food a day, and yet you're continuing to offer familiar foods from the previous days because you know that data out there that shows, gosh, some babies need to see a food 10 or 15 times before they'll like or accept it. And so we don't just offer a food once and be like, oh, dude, my yeah. baby hates broccoli. So now I got to pour like nacho cheese all over to get them to eat broccoli. No way. No, you got to yeah. try it 10 or 15 different ways. You don't need to bend over backwards and make like 15 different recipes, but it's not a one and done thing. We need to continually be exposing our babies to these foods so that they can become familiar with them, learn what to do with them, learn how to eat them and start being able to get the nutrition and the flavor benefits from all these different foods they're trying. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess meals. Chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom 
chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with Factor meals because they're ready in two minutes, no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious Factor meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Becoming a new mom does not come with a manual, but I'm trying to get as close to it as possible. Are you expecting a baby or know somebody who is? Make sure to grab my first year course, The New Mom Survival Guide. The on-demand course contains modules covering parenting in the first year, newborn feeding like breast and formula feeding, newborn sleep and infant sleep, introduction of solids, safety, baby care how-tos, developmental milestones, teething, and so much more. With videos and printables, you will feel supported through the first year. The course also has a roadmap that takes you through what to expect visit by visit so you can feel more confident and calm in the choices that you make and the stages that you'll go through during your baby's first year. By purchasing, you also get access to our Facebook community to troubleshoot issues or concerns. It also makes a great gift that can support a new mom through her motherhood journey. Check out the New Mom Survival Guide by visiting pedsdoctalk.com and searching our popular courses. All such important tips. And when you say it, it doesn't sound so difficult. But like you said, I think a lot of the hesitation comes from parental fear, right? Like we talked about parental fear of gag reflex and choking and all of that. I think that is a huge driver when I see parents in my office that have not advanced textures. And then the second part is lack of knowledge of understanding that a child can be exposed to these more trickier textures earlier, you know, at six months when they're showing the signs of um, wanting to feed all these things. Um, So it's really important to kind of educate, you know, parents to be educated. And that's why I'm so grateful that you could come on this podcast and talk about this. Is there an age for you where you get concerned where they're not eating anything but purees? I mean, I have my own answer, but I'm curious from your perspective, because I sometimes see families who are starting out with purees. Okay, they're going the old school way, which is fine, as long as they know they have to start exposing more textured foods. But is there a certain month that you're like, hmm, we have to start introducing this, and then there's more of a concern there, if not? Well, all babies are different, and we know this, and Mm -hmm. all babies get ready to eat at different times and show the signs of readiness to eat at different times, but it's somewhere around the six-month mark. And to be honest, Mm -hmm. most babies aren't really sitting up on their own until six months plus one week or six months plus two weeks or even six months plus three weeks. Most neurotypical healthy babies are going to be sitting up relatively unassisted by seven months of age. I was just interviewing an occupational therapist, Emma Hubbard. I don't know if you know her from YouTube, Brightest Beginning. She's amazing. She's Australian, and she came Mm -hmm. on doing, we did a whole episode on postural support. Support. And she was saying as a feeding therapist, so a registered dietitian cannot be a feeding therapist, but I have many colleagues who are occupational therapists and SLPs who are, and they're very good at identifying, listen, this is a baby who may potentially benefit from feeding therapy. And so I was asking about the question about sitting up. And she said, you know, in our world, generally around nine months, if a baby's not sitting on their own, that's when we red flag it. But the vast majority of babies would be sitting on their own by seven months, but there's some babies between seven and nine months that might not be, and there might be lots of other things going on. So there's no really like hard and fast rules about a when we start or B, when babies should be getting X amount of nutrition from food. And actually there there are no hard and fast guidelines about portion sizes for infants in the six to nine months. And even the data we have about like the recommended dietary allowances for infants in the second half of infancy, those are all based on scientific assumptions. So there's not even enough 
um, really good data to set RDAs for that age group. So again, what I'm saying is like a lot of this is like, you kind of got to go with your mom gut, but I think a good rule of thumb for parents is think about the six to 12 month continuum. When mm-hmm. you start at six months of age, baby's getting hundred percent of nutrition from infant milk. And by the time you get to 12 months of age, we like to see baby getting most of their nutrition from food because you still have milk in there, right? Infant milk up until age one. And then after one, if you decide to go cow's milk, you still get a little bit of nutrition from there. So generally around the nine month mark, you can surmise that most babies are going to be getting about half of their nutrition from food and half from infant milk. So when I see a nine month old who's only having like very tiny spoonfuls of purees, mm-hmm. I don't want to judge them, but I want to learn more about what's going yes, on. Yes. Maybe this baby is nine months chronological age, but my quadruplets, they were born six weeks premature. Mm-hmm. So from an adjusted age standpoint, they're really only like seven and a half month olds, which means it probably hasn't clicked for them. And then that's fine. And then there's other babies. Maybe they do have a tongue tie or they've had cleft palate or they've had some other surgeries. Like we've seen success with baby led weaning in all of these populations, including Down syndrome, but they might be on slightly different timeframes. So I think it is always best to trust your mom gut. If you're concerned about your baby's progress, ask your pediatrician for a referral to a feeding therapist. So an occupational therapist or a speech language pathologist who specializes in infant feeding. Sometimes parents get scared when they hear, oh my God, feeding therapy. It's not a lifelong diagnosis. You sometimes go to a few sessions with a therapist who helps you identify whether or not there's a problem and then will help you with exercises, things you can do to help your baby get over that problem if there really is a diagnosis. So I would say trust your mom gut and then bring in the professionals if you think it is appropriate and then educate yourself and learn about infant feeding from credentialed feeding experts because something that makes this problem so much worse is there's so much misinformation out there. We have bloggers teaching about baby led weaning and recipes that I see it all the time, day in and day out. And it's so hard to just bite your tongue, but very unsafe feeding practices, which certainly increase the risk of choking. Baby has a choking incident. And now all of a sudden they have negative associations with food and feeding. And that's because of something you saw on a blog about how to make food. So we do have some control in this as far as educating ourselves about certain things like the difference between gagging and choking and what to do if our baby chokes and how to safely prepare foods and introduce allergenic foods. But one thing I love about your content is you're always talking about the family dynamic. And so when you Mm -hmm. mentioned grandparents and spouses and partners, that complicates things. And so one thing I'd encourage parents to do, I know like your audience is like mine. We say parents and caregivers, but it's like 99.9% moms who are listening (laughs) and who are the primary feeders is you be the one to get comfortable offering the new foods to your baby. We never expect daycare or nannies or grandparents to introduce new foods. That's on the shoulders of the primary caregiver. But Mm -hmm. once you do that new food and your baby's done it a few times and they get comfortable with it, you get to put it in the list of familiar foods. And then familiar foods are foods that your baby is comfortable with. And that other people can be involved in helping your baby eat. So you can send those foods to daycare. You can show grandma, oh my gosh, look at little baby picking up these sardines and eating beets. <laughs> I remember my own mom being so skeptical of baby led yes, beans. She's both, like, this is yeah. this is like fine, but like they're eventually going to need to learn how to use utensils. I'm like, well, we're practicing with the spoon yes. and there's no fork utensil until 12 months of age. So we don't even bring forks into the picture until then. And she was like kind of poo-pooing baby led weaning. And then one time she was over helping me with the quads and she went out to take a phone call and I caught her talking to her other dietitian friend. She was like, oh my God, you should see Claire. She's like eating sardines. And then, oh my God, they're eating beets and it's so cute. I'm like, even the biggest baby led weaning doubters will become believers. Seeing really is believing, but don't invite those people who are not supporting you into the feeding environment, especially early on. Just wait until you get some good, comfortable foods under your belt and then bring them in and they're going to be blown away by all the foods your baby can safely self-feed. 
Oh, I have been there for sure. The doubters becoming believers and still even so. And then bragging about it. Like it was their idea. I'm like, heck yeah, you take all the credit. I don't care. At the end of the day, the baby's eating real food. And by the way, grandma, it's way less work for you when those kids come over. If they eat the same food that you're making, you don't have to short order cook. You don't have to buy expensive baby foods. It's easier, (laughs) cheaper, and so much better for your sanity. Yeah. When they're bragging, it's so funny. Cause you're like, where did all that commentary go? That commentary, like they can't do that. They can't do that. It's not going to happen. And I'm like, just be patient, promise you just watch it. And that's like so much with parenting, by the way, like with relatives and in-laws, it's like, Hey, look, I, I know what's best for my kid. I really want you to just watch it in the works. And if you don't believe it, that's fine, but we're going to continue doing this. It's something that's really important to our family. And you know, that's a whole other conversation about boundary setting and just kind of learning to accept what you really want to do for your child, which for many families could be baby led weaning. So this was an amazing conversation. And going back to your comment about the nine month mark, I agree, you know, at the nine month mark, traditionally, a lot of families who went the traditional puree route and then went to more chunkier foods, like who don't know anything about more textured self-feeding at the start of six months, they tend to start to introduce some more textured foods around like eight months. Nine or earlier, nine months, definitely, if a family in my office is only doing purees, it's a conversation. It's, hey, are you not wanting to do more textured foods? Is your child not tolerating it? Like you said, like, are they premature and maybe they're just not ready for it? Are they gagging a lot and that's scaring you or are they just spitting it out? And so it is a conversation. So if you're listening to this, remember going to those visits is really important, not just for weight and height. I think people think that the pediatrician's only for illness visits and weight and height, but it's conversations. And like Katie said, talking to the pediatrician and you're hearing this, if the pediatrician says, Hey, you know, just give it some time da da da, and doesn't give you more guidance. I want you to feel supported and get the guidance, whether that is through a referral, whether that is through reputable online resources that know what they're talking about. Um, because I don't want you to feel like you're not getting that support for that three months that you're waiting until the next checkup. So that is my pediatrician commentary because you said it multiple times that, you know, pediatricians do get nutrition training. Uh, we do actually in DO school and residency, not nearly as much as nutritionists, but that's like everything, right? We're general pediatricians. We can't know everything about everything. And a lot of the pediatricians nowadays, a lot of the younger pediatricians, like the ones like myself, are actually really into staying up to date on all these modern parenting things, especially us who have younger children. I do feel like a lot of the older pediatricians tend to get stuck in their ways of what they know, and they just aren't as open. Not all of them, okay? I don't want to generalize, but you may find a pediatrician that really does support you. And if they don't, like Katie said, get the referrals get a community online to kind of support you, but really using it as a big picture of, hey, my pediatrician may be an expert in this, but they don't know much about baby led weaning. Maybe that's okay. Make sure you listen to our episode on her podcast because we talk more about how to advocate for yourself at the pediatrician's office with baby led weaning so you feel supported, which I think is an important conversation. And I like that you point out that so many parents think the doctor is where you go when you're sick. And like, dude, they're called freaking well checks for a reason. Like your baby's right. fine. And when you go there, you're going to feel so good when you walk out. Like I am doing a good job here. And yeah. one thing I would also encourage you to do is to bring up the topic of screening for iron deficiency. And so mm-hmm. the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends screening for iron deficiency prior to 12 months of age. And so I am blown away every time we do surveys or we talk about this on social media, how many parents are like, dude, my doctor never asked about iron. They never checked their hemoglobin levels. And I would encourage parents to ask your doctor, what's the protocol here? What do you do in your office? Do you do finger sticks or heel sticks? Or how are we checking if the baby has adequate iron stores as you know shown by their hemoglobin levels? And if that's problematic, then what are we going to follow up? What sort of testing are we going to do? Because nine times out of 10 or more than that, your baby's going to come back with perfect hemoglobin levels. And you're like, 
yes, my baby is getting enough iron from these different foods that I'm feeding, plus the breast milk or the formula. And so, you know, having these discussions with your pediatrician and educating yourself about questions to ask when you get in there, because like you get in there and they're like the height and the weight. And then they're like, you know, sometimes they plot it wrong. You're like, oh my God, my baby's falling off the growth curve. And there's like all this anxiety. And sometimes we forget to just even ask the questions that can prove that we're doing a good job as parents. Your baby's staying on the growth chart. Great job. Look, your baby's head circumference. That means your their brain is growing. Those high fat foods you're offering are doing their job or their iron level are great. So good job. Keep it up with the plant and animal sources of iron. A lot of times having these kind of touch points at the doctor's office can make us kind of reinforce the parenting things that we're doing and make us feel better about ourselves as parents. Cause there's, I feel like so many forces out there that are trying to make us feel bad and guilty and anxious as parents, like use your pediatrician as an advocate for, you know, your parenting journey. And you, you made a good point. We're piecing together stuff here. Some doctors are like, I love my pediatrician passed away this year. We were so close with him. He was not pro baby led weaning. He's like, I got every mom in here asking me about this baby led weaning thing. And I was like, and doctors are coming at us all the time. Can I take a CME course? Like, how can I learn more about this? Yeah. Because you know why? Parents are asking about it. So if you're interested in it, research and ask your doctor about it. And many of them are certainly much more open to baby led weaning. Even though when I started my parenting compared to that, like eight years ago, I feel like it's so much more in the forefront these days, which is good because there is research to support yes. it. Yes. And because it's happening so often, I think the medical community, because we are the front line, it's so important that I hope people who are listening are in the medical field, pediatricians, maybe just newly out of residency. Um, it's such a passion of mine to teach my residents about baby led weaning because I didn't get that. Right. Um, so yeah. yeah, I love this conversation. And they because, all pay attention more when they have yes, their own babies. We have so many SLPs, yes. dietitians, OTs who are like, okay, I wasn't really on board with this, but then I have my own baby. And I know you and I both really harness the positive side of social media, which mm-hmm. I would argue is, is definitely an art these days um, <laughs> yeah. because seeing really is believing. And with baby led weaning, like I love my podcast. I love podcasts. It's, I was literally, I didn't, well, wasn't bedridden when I was pregnant with my quads, but I basically gave myself bed rest and I just listened to podcasts forever. I'm a podcast person. Yeah. And there's so much you can teach over podcasts, but the visual of how you prep the foods and seeing the baby eat and watching what a gag looks like, like the power of video and seeing that really is believing. And I would argue that the power of video and social media has been really important in elevating baby led weaning to the forefront of parenting. This is not some woo woo flash in the pan parenting thing or some made up thing from the internet. There is that real incredible body of evidence that supports this. So thank God the researchers are doing the research and thank God the parents are out there implementing safe feeding practices and showing that babies can do this. Cause don't tell me a six month old can't eat soft, solid strips of lamb because I show it every day. I see it every day, but I need to show you how to make it safe because there's so mm-hmm. much misinformation out there. We see accounts giving, you know, feed your baby steak and pork chops. Say, you know, you with a three-year-old, I bet Ryan has trouble eating steak and pork chops. Oh As yeah. We say, so chewy. With me, yeah. I always say, if you can shred the meat between your finger and your thumb, then it's safe for your baby to eat with their gums. I will do roast leg of lamb in week one of baby led weaning, but I would never, ever, ever give a baby a solid piece of a lamb chop because well, lamb is right. lamb. No, it's not. It's the nuance of what cut you make or you're buying, Mm -hmm. how you're preparing it, and then how you're offering it to your baby. Lamb can be incredibly unsafe or incredibly safe for a baby to eat. And so I think sometimes we need to like look at those nuances and say, gosh, all I have to do is learn a little bit about this. And then my baby can do that as well. And that's the point of what we're doing at the Baby Led Wean Team. I love it. Oh, Katie, this was such an awesome conversation. I, like I said, have enjoyed coming on your podcast. Having you come on mine has been such a pleasure today. So I'm sure my guests are just wondering where they can find more about your resources. So if you can, please share where you're located, resources, all of that. And I'm going to be attaching that to my show notes as well. 
Well, if you guys want to get started pushing your baby's palate beyond purees, I recommend grabbing a copy of my 100 first foods list. This is a free list of a hundred foods your baby can eat before turning one. Cause when you learn about baby led weaning, the next thing is like, okay, well, what foods do I feed? So you can grab a copy of my 100 first foods list on my free one hour video training. That's called baby led weaning for beginners. You can sign up for this week's workshop times at babyledweaning.co. So if you go to babyledweaning.co, sign up, you'll get the hundred first foods list on the workshop. I do a Q&A at the end of the workshop. We make a point to answer every single question. So love I'd it. love for you guys to take the training so you can see what it looks like, what it doesn't look like, what foods we feed, what we don't offer, and then walk away with that 100 first foods list and get started pushing your baby's palate beyond purees as soon as you feel comfortable doing that. Yes, I love it. Thank you again, Katie, for joining us today. Thank you, Mona. And for everyone listening, I know you love this episode. Um, whether you are familiar with baby led weaning or you are just learning about it or wanted to learn more, this was an amazing conversation. I love talking to Katie both on the show and off the show. She's a wealth of information. If you loved it, make sure you leave a review and call her out. Say how much you loved her conversation with me today. And I can't wait to invite another guest next week to the show. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. As always, please leave a review share this episode with a friend, share it on your social media. Make sure to follow me at Peds Doc Talk on Instagram and subscribe to my YouTube channel, Peds Doc Talk TV. We'll talk to you soon. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and, more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.